23. Luke 22, 1 through 23. Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. They said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Father, we pray as we come to this passage that you would speak to us, that we would see as we sang the power of the cross, the Son of God slain for us, that we would consider the cost and the love uh, that that cost entails, that we would leave today encouraged to follow Jesus with all of our hearts. We ask in his name. Amen. This passage is an example of it. Um, Very often it seems to me that the best things in life and the worst things in life are strangely mingled together. That is to say that life's most uplifting and enduring moments are often blossoming right alongside life's most tragic and toxic moments. Were we in Japan right now, I think we would see that happening. The people who survived the tsunami on March 11th will never forget the horror of those black waters rushing in upon them. But neither will many of them ever forget the faces of those who rescued them from a rooftop or who brought them a blanket or a pillow, or a hot meal, or Lord willing, a copy of the New Testament. So this never-to-be-forgotten tragedy that they're enduring is, is tragedy, but it's surely bringing out the best in many people, believers and unbelievers alike, so that the best of times and the worst of times, as Dickens said it, are being woven together into one unforgettable moment. And it often happens that way. Some of you have experienced that in your very own lives, I'm sure. For some of you, it was tragedy or great difficulty, or grief, or fear that brought you to know the Lord. 
or that brought you back from a time of backsliding. And you can look back on those days and say with all seriousness that they were some of the worst days of your life. But you can also say that they were some of the most beneficial days as well. In God's providence, that's just how life often seems to work. The best and the worst are often inextricably tangled together. And as we proceed now into the final three chapters of this book of Luke, that fact of life is going to be horrendously and marvelously on display again and again and again. These last three chapters of Luke represent the darkest days of human history, don't they? The days in which God himself walked among us in humility and love and wisdom, and in return for all of his goodness, he was betrayed and misrepresented and arrested and mocked and beaten and spat upon and crucified. There has never been, nor could there ever be, any period of history as sin-stained as this one in Luke 22 through 24. And yet, even as the murky waters of sin were at their high tide, so was the purifying power of the love of God. Because those days of betrayal and abuse and death were not only the worst of times in world history, but they were the best of times as well. Because by enduring all those things, Jesus purchased our eternal salvation. So we're going to be seeing the ugliness and hatred of sin and the beauty and love of forgiveness side by side again and again and again in these final chapters of Luke. Like they never were before and like they never have been since. And that's painfully and gloriously obvious in the passage that we've just read this morning. Can we imagine a character or an event as despicable as this turncoat, Judas Iscariot, betraying his friend, who also happens to be the Son of God, in exchange for money? The waters can't get any blacker than they get here in these first few verses of Luke 22, can they? And yet, aren't we thankful in this very same passage that the broken bread and the shared cup of the Lord's Supper that have forever since helped us to remember and give thanks for the love of Christ are here as well? It's a strange paradox we have in these 23 passages, 23 verses. These verses are ugly, and yet they are beautiful. They are sickening, and yet they are attractive. They are dark. And yet they are light, all rolled into one. And therefore, just as an aside and a practical application, we should never be surprised when our own lives seem to be composed of this strange mixture. The best of times and the worst of times so often go together in God's plan. But now with, with those things in mind as a backdrop and a paradigm for this passage, let's begin to look at Jesus' Last Supper in its betrayal and in its beauty just a little more closely. And as we do, I think you'll notice that the passage naturally divides itself out into three portions, each of which are marked off by a move ahead on the clock. For instance, verse 1, we read that the feast of the Passover was approaching. And then in verse 7, we read now that the first day of the feast has arrived. And then by the time we reach verse 14, the hour of the Passover meal had come. So verses 1 through 6 take place before the Passover actually began. Verses 7 through 13 describe what happened the day of. And then beginning in verse 14, we zoom in on the evening of the meal itself. And we'll look at each of those time frames individually this morning. That's how we'll divide out the rest of our time. So first of all, from verses 1 through 6, as the feast was approaching, I want you to notice the Lord's betrayal. That's the first thing this morning, the Lord's 
betrayal. We see it here, obviously. Now, Judas's dastardly actions weren't culminated here in Luke 22. We still have ahead of us the 30 pieces of silver and the Roman soldiers following Judas to Jesus' favorite prayer nook. We still have ahead of us the infamous kiss with which he betrayed his master. But all those ugly events have their genesis here in Luke 22, 1 through 6. And they begin, I want you to notice, not just with a disillusioned disciple, but those events of betrayal actually begin also with a group of jealous religious leaders, and they begin with that one who is more jealous of Jesus than anyone else, Satan himself. The chief priests and the scribes, verse 2, were already seeking how they might put him to death, and Satan evidently saw that opportunity and began to seek out a weakness in Jesus' inner circle. He began to seek out a disciple who would be among the twelve, but who might just be willing to be used as a part of this plan to get rid of Jesus once and for all. And so, though we read very plainly that Satan entered into Judas, verse 3, we also have to read, I believe, with the assumption that Judas was open to such a turn of events, that Judas was already greedy or disillusioned or growing impatient with Jesus' plan. Satan found an opportunity in a disciple who was ready to be turned. He found an easy target. He found, as Jesus says elsewhere, a house ready and swept for him to come in and make use of right away. And I just want to point out in these first six verses then what we might call the anatomy of a betrayal. In other words, I want to ask the question, what kinds of thoughts and feelings and desires go into a decision like the one that Judas and the others made? It's important for us to notice, not only so that we might simply understand this passage and understand Judas, but so that we might be wary of becoming Judas ourselves, so that we might be wary of those thoughts and feelings and desires that creep into our souls and that can eventually lead us to turn away from the Lord. And so along those lines, allow me to point out to you that one key factor in this betrayal was jealousy. Jealousy. Clearly, the chief priests and the scribes were jealous of Jesus. He was garnering all the attention that they craved for themselves. They wished that the people would hang on their every word like they saw the crowds hanging on Jesus' every word in the last verse of chapter 21. And Jesus himself told us back in chapter 20, verse 14, you can look that up later, Jesus told us that the religious leaders wanted to get rid of him precisely so that they could take the place that was rightly his, so that they could be the heirs to God's kingdom, so that they could sit on the throne and they could control the people and they could be adored by the masses and so on. They were jealous of Jesus' fame and they were jealous that they might be able to grab some of the spotlight for themselves. And clearly, that was Satan's motive as well, right? The whole reason Satan fell from heaven in the first place was because he was jealous of God. He wanted to be like God. He wanted the power that belonged only to Father and Son and Holy Spirit. In fact, when Jesus was fasting in the wilderness at one of his weakest points, humanly speaking, Satan tried to persuade Jesus himself to bow down and give him the glory that belonged only to Jesus' heavenly Father. But of course, Jesus wouldn't budge. And so, If Satan couldn't get Jesus to bow down to him, now he's going to try and do the next best thing. He's going to try to eliminate him altogether so that he will not take the glory that Satan wants for himself. Satan was eaten up with jealousy. Now, I'm well aware, as we try to apply this, that there are probably precious few of us who would openly say with Satan that we want to bask in the limelight that belongs only to Jesus. 
hopefully, none of us would be openly saying, like the scribes and the priests, that we want to rob Jesus of the glory that belongs to him alone. But isn't it true that we often find ourselves kind of in, in the side door wanting to be glorified, wanting to be patted on the back, wanting to be recognized, wanting to be, wanting to be given credit for all that we've done? We don't necessarily want people to realize that that's what we want. But some of you know full well how you slip little things into conversations sometimes that are subtle hints at how well you're doing or at how much you've sacrificed or how faithful you've been. And, of course, you hope, and I do too, that people will pick up on those things because we want praise. Or maybe we're not even that overt about it, but many of us desperately want people to notice us. And we're often sullen when we don't receive the praise that we think we deserve. And what we're doing, usually without realizing it, is we're trying to be Jesus. We're trying to be Jesus. We want people to feel like it couldn't have been done without us. When in reality, we know that the only person for whom that is true is the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He's the only one about whom we can say, boy, we couldn't have done it without you. Jesus. And so we better be very careful of craving attention and recognition, even if the recognition that we crave is just a small amount. Because it was jealousy for personal recognition and glory that led these men eventually to turn away from Jesus and to betray him. And it could happen to us as well. But notice also, as we're thinking about the anatomy of this betrayal, that it wasn't just about jealousy. The Lord's betrayal was also marked by greed. Greed. Now we come especially to the person of Judas. Now, perhaps Judas wanted personal glory as well. We're not told that for sure. But one thing we do know is that Judas was persuaded to betray his master for something even less valuable than the praise of men. Judas was willing to turn his back on Jesus for money, verse 5, for 30 pieces of silver. And again, it would be easy for us simply to skim over this portion and assume that the greatest application here is to be made simply in shaking our heads at how anyone could be this foolish. Surely we would never be like Judas. We would never hand Jesus over or turn our backs on him. And certainly we would never do it for money. And hopefully we wouldn't. But is it even in the realm of possibility that some of us could? Is it possible that the love of money could make you or me a turncoat? Before we quickly answer in the negative, let me just point out that Judas was, verse 3, among the number of the twelve. He was much closer to Jesus, Jesus in many ways than you and I will ever be this side of heaven. And if it could happen to one of the twelve, it could happen to you, couldn't it? And it could happen to me. And it starts out subtly. Maybe you begin withholding your tithe, which Malachi 3 says is robbing God in and of itself. But you do it because of your lack of faith. You convince yourself that you can't live on 90% of your income. And so God understands that and you don't need to do what he says. And you begin to turn. Or maybe for you, it's that you get involved in credit purchases or business dealings that you know are foolish or greedy or beyond your reach. And in order to make it work, you have to either begin to be dishonest or delinquent with people, which is sin, or you have to rob God of his tithes and offerings in order to pay back your debts. Or maybe you're getting them paid back, but your thoughts 
and your dreams and your hopes, which ought to be centered on the kingdom of God and advancing it, begin to be consistently taken up with those business deals or with your nest egg or whatever it may be so that when you put your head on the pillow at night, you're thinking about money. Or maybe if you get greedy and financially overstretched, you have to begin to burn the candle at both ends and to neglect the word of God and the people of God for the sake of making more money. You begin to take overtime even when it interferes with church. And before long, you're so spiritually dry that it becomes a chore to come even when you have the day off. And your soul becomes drier and crustier and more parched until one day you wake up and you can't even recognize yourself anymore. You wonder what's happened to you. How did I get this far? Well, for some of us, the answer may be that somewhere along the line we got greedy. We got too far out on a limb with our credit. We loved money. And if it seems like the scenario that I'm painting it seems too far-fetched, if it seems a little over the top to compare to Judas, someone who simply stops tithing or skips church to work overtime, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, I want you to notice the word wandered importantly. The love of money doesn't usually result in an abrupt, Judas-like denial of the faith. But it often leads almost imperceptibly to slowly wandering away from the faith because you're concerned about other things so that you wake up one day and don't know what happened to you. It's like when you go to sleep on the raft in Florida and you wake up and the tide has carried you so far out you don't know how you got there. That's what happens. And if that happens, without your ever coming to repentance of it, your final resting place will be just the same as Judas's, though he got there quickly and you wandered away slowly. You will have simply moseyed off the cliff blindfolded instead of diving in head first like him. So Jesus says in Luke twelve fifteen, be on guard against every form of greed, not just obvious, abrupt, Judas-like greed, but every form of greed. And thirdly, still under this main umbrella of betrayal, consider the cowardice of the men who perpetrated it. There was jealousy, there was greed, there was cowardice. The chief priests and the scribes were trying to find a sneaky way of eliminating Jesus because, verse 2, they were afraid of the people. And then notice Judas, verse 6, was seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them. In other words, neither Judas nor the scribes and the priests had the intestinal fortitude to just come out and say that they thought Jesus was a rascal, that they thought he was an infidel, and that they were tired of listening to what he said and that they were no longer, to will, no longer willing to tolerate his teachings and his claims. No, they couldn't do that. If they did that, the people might have their heads. And so for the self, sake of self-preservation, they had to play the angles. They had to look for an opportunity They had to do it when the people wouldn't know what was going on. And these men are a warning to us again, down through the ages, that this is almost always the way Jesus is betrayed and denied and so on, especially when the betrayers are religious folks. He's almost always denied and betrayed in a cowardly way. There are Judases and scribes and pulpits all across our country this morning who don't really actually believe in the biblical Jesus. They don't believe in his miracles, not even his bodily resurrection from the dead. 
They don't like the places where he calls us evil or says that unless we repent, we'll all likewise perish. They squirm when they hear someone quote John 14, 6, as though Jesus really meant what he said when he told us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And these men and women are as much deniers of Jesus and betrayers of Jesus as Judas was. Yet, and here's my point, most of them are not going to say those things straight out. They're not going, most of them, to stand up this Easter morning and say to their congregations, you know this whole bit about Jesus rising from the dead? It's wonderful, isn't it? But of course you all realize that it's just a parable. Jesus didn't literally rise from the dead. The Bible just says that as an old-fashioned sort of poetic way of saying that if we will all live like Jesus did, then the spirit of Jesus lives on in us. And so if we will just be like Jesus, then in some ways it'll be like he was not dead at all. Though, of course, we all know, any thinking person knows that his body's still in the tomb. That's what they think. But that's not what they're going to say, is it? Why not? Well, because, verse 2, they're afraid of the people. They know that as meagerly as their people have been fed, at least a few people would sit up and take notice if someone just came right out and said that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. And so they don't just come right out and say it. Rather, they look like Judas in verse 6 for a good opportunity to just quietly drip a few drops of their poison into the stream. And so we have to beware. You have to beware of every person you listen to, including and especially me, since I'm the main one you listen to. Make sure that I get it right, because betrayal, because of the cowardice of the men who perpetrate it, is almost always very subtle indeed. And as we said a few moments ago, betrayal often sneaks up very subtly on the very ones who are doing the betraying as well. So that if we are not careful, we can find ourselves as far away as Judas was before we even realize what has happened. Be on guard. That's the first thing, the Lord's betrayal. But now, from verses 7 through 13, and on a much brighter note, let's marvel at the Lord's authority. The Lord's authority. Aren't verses 7 through 13 amazing? Everything happens, verse 13, just as Jesus said it would. And everyone does just what Jesus asks them to do. It's an amazing thing. It should remind you of Jesus' triumphal entry back in chapter 19. Do you remember chapter 19? In that passage, like this one, Jesus sent his disciples away to make preparations for them. That time it wasn't the Passover. That time Jesus sent them away to make preparations by finding a donkey on which he might ride into Jerusalem. And like he does here, he told them exactly where the donkey would be and what they should say if they were asked their reason for taking it. And like this passage, the donkey was exactly where he said it would be. And the bystanders, when the disciples told them what Jesus said they should tell them, let the donkey go, just like Jesus said it would happen. Luke 19, 32. And here we have it the exact same way in chapter 22. Jesus sends his disciples once again to make preparations, verse 8. And when they asked about where they should set up the table and where they should spread out the food, Jesus did not give them a street address, did he? Nor did he tell them to ask around until someone told them how to get to Mr. Isaacson's house. Now, he could have done those things, right? Those would have been the easy and normal ways for Jesus to have given Peter and John directions to this house. But what Jesus did instead was to give them directions to the house, verse 10, in such a way that would leave no doubt in their minds and no doubt in ours that Jesus 
is in absolute control over all life's events. What does he say? Well, they say, where, where are we to set up the dinner table, Jesus? Verse 9. I'll tell you what he says in the next verse. When you go into town, you're going to see a guy walking through right by the city gate carrying a pitcher of water. He works for the fellow in whose house we're going to eat tonight. So just follow him and you'll be there. And of course, the question is, how did Jesus know that that servant would be walking right past the city gate at precisely the time when Peter and John would be entering into the city? The answer is because Jesus knows everything, right? And Jesus is in control of everything. The wind and the waves we've seen obey his voice. The sparrows don't fall out of the trees without his permission. And the servant makes his daily trek to the water well exactly when his doing so will be best to suit the purposes of Jesus. This servant was in the right place at the right time because Jesus wanted him there. Jesus led him to exactly the right place at exactly the right time. Also, it would seem without the man ever really realizing that it was happening. And I submit to you that that's often how God works. God always has people in the right places at the right times. There are no coincidences. The Lord has absolute authority in this world. But we don't always realize that he's doing it. But we have to trust, even when we don't sense his guiding even when we don't see his guiding we have to trust that he will have us exactly where he wants us to be for his good purposes whether that means doing something as mundane as carrying a pitcher of water pitcher of water or whether it means being at the hospital or in the funeral home or whether it means being on the mountaintop and doing what you've always dreamed of you're in the lord's hands and so am i just like this man carrying the water. And we ought, all of us, to do a much better job of simply trusting that when the time is right, Jesus will have us just where he wants us to be, whether we realize it or not, for his purposes. And I want you to note that last part well, for his purposes. Jesus may not always place you where you think would be most exciting or beneficial, but he will place you in the spot that is most beneficial for his wise, good, larger purposes. And as I say, sometimes you may not even realize that you're there or that you're part of a bigger plan, but you are. Think about this servant. He probably didn't have an overwhelming sense as he walked out of the house that day that he was going to be a part of some grand scheme of things as he trudged along the road carrying that jar of water over his shoulders. He probably didn't walk out that day saying to himself, you know, I think I might just run into the next two biblical authors this morning. Of course not. Maybe he was even a little hacked off at having to be out once again in the sun lugging that big thing on his back. Must have been heavy, right? But here he was, not mainly for his comfort and not even so that he could feel like he was really accomplishing something important, but simply because that's where Jesus wanted him to be. Let me say that again. The servant was where he was, not mainly for his comfort or not even so that he could feel like he was accomplishing something important, but simply because that is where Jesus wanted him to be. And so you and I have to trust that the same will be true for us, no matter where the Lord places us. Even when it doesn't seem like your life is amounting to anything grand, you have to trust that the Lord knows best and that he has you right where he wants you. And before we leave this point about Jesus' authority, I want you to notice Jesus' authority being played out 
not only in the life of this young man who didn't realize that he was being led by God's hand, but especially in the lives of the people who did. Yes, this young man was where Jesus wanted him to be, probably without realizing it, and that's amazing. But I want you to note well that Peter and John and the owner of the house were exactly where Jesus wanted them to be as well, and willingly so. And I think that's just as impressive, if not more. Just notice with me, it may not seem like a big deal that Peter and John simply went into town in verse 13 and did as Jesus asked. It wasn't a hard thing on some levels. And it was Jesus who was asking, of course. But as we pointed out, when Jesus sent them to get the donkey in Luke 19, this was not an easy thing he was asking of them. Jesus sent Peter and John into town to call at the house of a man whom they did not know and to basically expect him to make way for them lickety-split. The meal's tonight. We need a place. Set everything up for us. And notice that Jesus didn't tell Peter and John simply to request a room or to inquire about whether space was available. This isn't Mary and Joseph at the end finding out if there's room. No, they were simply to go and really somewhat bluntly simply to say, where's the room? Jesus needs it. We're going to be here tonight. And for most of us to come and make such a demand on the time and property of someone whom we have never met would be a little bit intimidating, wouldn't it? Even if we were going in Jesus' name. And yet they went. And so must we. We must be willing to obey even when it's difficult. We must be like Peter and John. And we must be like the man in verse 12 as well who owned the home. Now we're not told whether Jesus had made a prior arrangement with this homeowner. Or whether this man's encounter with the disciples was the first time he'd heard of Jesus' request. But in either case, this man at some point was confronted with a request from the Lord Jesus. And at some point, he had to decide to grant what had been asked of him and to do what Jesus required. And again, you may think, well, he's got an extra room. No big deal. But remember that it probably wasn't easy for this man to do what he did having Jesus and the disciples in his home. Remember, verse 5, Jesus has a bounty on his head. And in spite of how secret the scribes and the priests tried to keep their little ruse, surely the people of Jerusalem realized at least that these religious characters had it in for Jesus, that he was persona non grata as far as they were concerned. And so though this homeowner may not have realized how bad it was eventually going to get, he may not have realized how far they were going to carry their hatred, he at least knew, surely, that it was a religious risk inviting this Jesus into his home, showing friendship to him. Perhaps he would be persecuted as well. Perhaps he would be put out of the synagogue like the blind man in John 9 for his association with Jesus. Maybe these kinds of thoughts rolled through his mind. We don't know for sure. But whatever the case, the owner of this home must have known that his friendship with Jesus might come back to bite him in a human sense. And yet he opened his home nonetheless. And I say to you again that we must be willing to do the same. So I just ask you, what are the hard things that Jesus is asking of you? Just think about it for a moment. What is Jesus asking you to do that you know you have to do, but you're not sure you want to do? Maybe for you it's like Peter and John. that You need to pass along the message of the Lord to someone whom you're not sure is going to receive it very well. Maybe like the homeowner in verse 12, you need to offer your time or your possessions to the Lord in a more costly way. Maybe it's something else for you. I don't know what it is. But probably you do. So what is it? 
What is the Lord in his authority asking of you? And will you do it? Will you submit to his authority? We're amazed when we see Jesus ordering the steps of the servant in verse 10, who probably never realized what was happening. But we should be all the more amazed when we see the disciples in verse 11 and the homeowner in verse 12 submitting to Jesus' authority when they knew full well what he was asking and they realized how difficult it would be. And I simply ask you, if anyone is going to be amazed seeing you bowing the knee to Jesus' authority, even when it's hard. Hopefully... They will, and soon. So then, we've shuddered at the Lord's betrayal. We've marveled at and I hope been challenged by the Lord's authority. And now finally, from verses 14 and following, let's think about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. Here is the passage that explains why it is that we eat unleavened bread and drink grape juice on the first Sunday of every month. It's not something that some Christian somewhere just thought would be a good idea. Oh, look, this looks like Flesh and blood, let's do this. No, we partake of the Lord's Supper because Jesus commanded us to. Take this, verse 17. Do this, verse 19. The Lord's Supper is a command for those who are followers of Jesus. And let me insert at this point, this is another reason for you to be diligent in your attendance at these services. You don't want out of slothfulness or carelessness or busyness with the things of the world to unnecessarily miss this 12 times a year opportunity to obey this commandment that Jesus has given. It's a command. But then notice also while we're dealing with why we take the supper that Jesus says that we do this in remembrance of him. In remembrance. Verse 19. That in two words is what the Lord's Supper really is. It's a remembrance. In other words, there's not anything magical or miraculous in the bread or the wine themselves. They don't become the body or the blood of Jesus. They do not impart grace to your soul. No, Jesus says the bread and the cup are a remembrance. And I say that not to minimize their importance, but actually to clarify it. Yes, the Lord's Supper can and does offer special grace and help to the believer, but it's not the physical bread and wine that offer the grace and the help. It's the remembering that helps us. And yes, Jesus is spiritually present when we partake of the Lord's Supper. But he is not simply present because we've set bread and wine on the table. He's present because at least two or three people are gathered in his name to remember him. That's the important thing. It's remembering and contemplating the one whom these elements symbolize that breathes grace into our soul. It's remembering and contemplating that brings Jesus to be present when we eat and when we drink. So that two people may eat these very same elements in the very same room on the very same Sunday with the very same words pronounced over the bread and the cup and only one of those two people be helped at all by what they do. Because the help comes not from the elements themselves as though there were some mystical powers in them. The help comes when you, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, by an act of your will, remember and appreciate and receive what these elements represent. So Jesus is very present in the Lord's Supper, no doubt. But he is present because of what we remember, not simply because of what we eat or we drink. That's the why of the Lord's Supper. But then finally, let me help you think about the what of the Lord's Supper. What does the supper symbolize? Well, note, first of all, that the the Lord's Supper symbolizes freedom. Freedom, release from slavery and captivity. 
And the reason we know that that's what it symbolizes is because the Lord's Supper, and we see it here, sprung up out of an even older ceremonial recollection of freedom from slavery. Remember that in this passage, Jesus and his disciples were not gathered because Jesus had told them that he was going to institute a new custom. He did do that, of course, but that's not why they gathered. They gathered to celebrate an even older custom, namely the feast of the Passover, verse 15. And that was the Jewish meal that once a year, right around this time of year, brought to memory how God had set his people free from their slavery in Egypt. And the people would eat certain things and drink certain things as reminders of what it was like in Egypt and as reminders of how God had actually gotten them out of there. And in fact, we'll get far more detail on what they ate and drank and why in three weeks when John Moskowitz of Jews for Jesus is with us. But for now, suffice it to say that the Passover that these men are celebrating here in Luke 22 was a visual, edible, once-a-year reminder of how God released his people from slavery in Egypt, way back in the book of Exodus. It was an emancipation celebration. And so it's no accident that on the eve of Jesus setting his people free from their sin, that he would have used this emancipation celebration as a portrait and reminder of an even better kind of freedom. It's no accident that the remembrance of our freedom from slavery to sin would have its roots in the Israelite remembrance of their freedom from slavery in Egypt. The two are so similar. So the Lord's Supper is about freedom. It's a reminder that just as the Jews no longer had to answer to Pharaoh, you and I no longer have to answer to sin. We've been set free in Jesus. And while we may sometimes choose to go on living as we did before, we don't have to. That's part of what the Lord's Supper says to us. We don't have to keep on sinning. We are no longer slaves to sin. But then, drawing from, the t- from two of the elements of the Passover meal, Jesus reminds us why it is that we don't have to go on sinning. Why it is that we're forgiven. Why it is that we're set free. We're set free from sin precisely because of what the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper symbolize, right? Christ died for us. He allowed his body to be broken for us and his blood to be shed for us. And in so doing, he defeated sin and Satan and death so that none of those things has hold on us any longer. We don't have to sin. We don't have to stay dead. We don't have to believe the devil's lies any longer. Christ has freed us from all that once held us captive by his broken body and his shed blood symbolized in the Lord's Supper. And not only that, but he's freed us from the wrath of God as well. We were singing about this a few moments ago, weren't they? Weren't we? He's freed us from the wrath of God. After all, we are the ones who, because of our sin, deserve to be broken. We are the ones whose blood ought to be spilled. In fact, you should think of that when you hold the bread and the cup in your hand in a few moments. By all rights, the saying ought to be, this is your body broken for sin, and this is your blood shed for iniquity. Because the wages of sin, the scriptures say, is death. I deserve to die for my sins. I'm the one who ought to be broken and bruised and bleeding. But Christ was broken for me. Christ bled for me. And he bled and was broken for you too, if you will but repent of your sin and entrust yourself to him. Christ suffered for us. And God wants us never to forget that. That's why Jesus lifted these two elements, the bread and the cup, from the once-a-year Passover meal and form them into a ceremony that most churches celebrate far more often than just once every 12 months. 
We do this once a month because Jesus wants us never to forget what he's done for us. He wants us always to remember what it costs to set us free and how much we must be loved if both father and son were willing to pay that price. And so you should gaze deeply into the cup this morning. You should pay careful attention to the color of the liquid inside. It's blood red for a reason. And look carefully at the bread as well. Break it before you put it in your mouth and watch the crumbs scatter and crumble down onto your clothes and remind yourself that so it was with Jesus' own flesh. Jesus was torn in pieces for you. Bits of his flesh, like the crumbs of this morning's communion bread, were scattered all around that hill called Calvary. Fragments of his skin, even once he was taken down from the cross, were surely still clinging to the splintered wood where they'd been gouged out of his back. Pieces of his muscle tissue were probably stuck to the ends of the scourge with which they beat him. That's how much he loves you to go through that for you. And you should see it when the bread crumbles in your hands this morning. He was broken for you. And not only should you look carefully at the bread and the cup, but of course, if you belong to Christ and to his church, you should take them and eat them as well. Because the symbols aren't just visual, they're edible too. And why are they edible? Because when you place them in your mouth, you are to be remembering that time when you first tasted and saw that the Lord was good. You are to remember that time when you first took Jesus himself in by faith. In other words, taking into your body the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper is a symbol and a reminder that you have actually taken Christ himself in as well. I hope that you have. And if you haven't, I hope that you will, so that the next time we remember in this way, you might be able to remember with us. And now a final question that I think will tie this entire passage together. Once you have tasted and seen how Jesus suffered and died on your behalf, once you have remembered through the bread and the cup how much Jesus has loved you, can it be that you would ever betray him? Surely, when we consider what Jesus has done, we ought never to find it necessary to have a conversation like Jesus and the disciples were having in verses 21 through 23. May it never be. May we be moved by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus to remember him and to love him with all of our hearts. And may we be driven through these visible reminders of Christ's sacrifice to submit all the more willingly to his authority. And may we be helped as we remember how much he loves us, to never even think of becoming a Judas. Father, we pray that we would not betray you, but trust you. That we would not turn from your authority, but submit to it willingly. All because we see how much you have loved us in the bread and the cup, in the broken body and shed blood of your Son. And now as we take these things together, give us grace to remember, to receive, to believe in what Christ has done for us. We ask in his name. Amen.